Hello, and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who believe in peace, justice, and the American way. I'm Mr. Crowder. And I'm Mr. Hertzler. And today we're going to discuss perhaps the most important amendment to the Constitution outside of the Bill of Rights, and that is the 14th Amendment. Right. The 14th Amendment has been so influential in the history of our country ever since the Civil War. Hey, guys. What? Hey, guys. How did you get in here? Well, I have my ways. Oh, oh, it's it's Roseman. Oh, okay. Well, um, as I was saying, the 14th Amendment has been so influential in the history of our country ever since the end of the Civil War. That's right, Crowder. It was one of three major amendments that were introduced at the end of the war, and they all played a vital role in fixing mistakes of the past. But the 14th Amendment has perhaps done the most, specifically in regards to the Supreme Court. So let's go ahead and get started. Hey, hey you, you don't get to start the episode. That's what we do. Well, I just did. Yeah, but that's not cool, Dan. I mean, and muted. Roll the intro. Uh, Okay. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This is the GovKai's podcast, episode nine, The Equalizer, not Denzel, the 14th Amendment. We just spent some time talking about the core ideas of the 14th Amendment in the intro, and we agreed it'd be most fair if we all tried to split the time equally. Dan, I'm sorry I didn't want you to start the episode. I know you are, buddy. I don't think that's the apology you think it is. Uh, Anyway, coming out of the Civil War, there were three amendments put into place in very quick succession, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Yeah, and we even thought this episode is supposed to be all about the 14th Amendment. We'll most certainly need to discuss some of the other vital amendments here. Dan, how about you take the 13th Amendment? Sure. The 13th Amendment is definitely the most straightforward because it literally ended slavery. Uh, It was created as an amendment in part so that any law that tried to outlaw slavery could not be ruled as unconstitutional. Once you add something to the Constitution, it can't be said it's unconstitutional. It's in there. The trick, of course is like a lot of amendments, it had a weird caveat. There's more you can find out by watching different documentaries. Um, There's 13th on Netflix. There's Slavery by Another Name that Lawrence Fishburne narrates. But at the end of the day, the 13th Amendment did end slavery. However, it created a caveat where it said, unless it is a punishment for criminal service. I might be quoting it wrong, but at the end of the day, If you've ever seen a crew of prisoners cleaning up on the side of the road, they're technically doing slave labor, and it's allowed under the 13th Amendment by that caveat. Right, and in that same time frame, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and this was actually the first major civil rights bill to come out of Congress uh, after the Civil War. And what the Civil Rights Act of 1866 did was it offered citizenship for these newly freed uh, individuals all across the country. But just as Roseman noted with the 13th Amendment, they wanted to make sure that it had a lot of staying power and wasn't something that could theoretically be overturned in time. And so the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which guaranteed citizenship for freed people, was actually going to be made into an amendment. And that becomes the 14th Amendment. In section one of the 14th Amendment reads, 
all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So there's a lot there and a really small amount of space, but I'll take the first part and we'll kind of make our way through it from there. Uh, the first line is simply meant to guarantee citizenship to formerly enslaved people who are now free following the Civil War. One of the really big takeaways is that this is meant to fix wrongs of the past, especially if we're talking about the Dred Scott decision. Dan, how about you take the Dred Scott decision? Give us a little bit of background. Yeah, thanks. So Dred Scott was a man who was uh, enslaved. And again, I'm going to get a couple of the detail details wrong because it gets really convoluted. But at the end of the day, he was a slave who lived in a slave state. His owner moved to a state where slavery was illegal, and then he moved back to a slave state later on. And Dred Scott argued that because he had lived in a state where slavery was illegal, he should be free. And so this was a very important Supreme Court case in the 1850s called Dred Scott versus Sanford. Um, at the end of the day, it was a shocker because Dred Scott lost his case. And there were huge ramifications for this. In fact, Chief Justice Taney, T-A-N-E-Y, but it's pronounced Taney, basically said, Dred Scott, you're not even a citizen. You don't even have a right to bring this case to court. Uh, and all but threw it out by declaring that. He also declared what is called the Missouri Compromise to be unconstitutional. The Missouri Compromise was a compromise that was established in 1820 by Henry Clay. And what it did is it solidified which states would be slave and which states would be free by establishing a line that's at 3630. So that's 36 degrees and 30 minutes of latitude. Um, and it basically split the U.S. in half. You can think about it like a perforated line. It basically made it to where it was very easy to split the U.S. in half and get into a civil war. And so what it did is it said that any state north of that 3630 line would be free. Any state south of the 3630 line would be slave territory. And Taney basically said that that compromise was unconstitutional and gave it back to the states under popular sovereignty, meaning each state could decide for itself whether or not they wanted to be a slave state. As you can imagine, this has had significant ramifications, and it is considered to be one of the most significant causes of the Civil War. But for our purposes today, the big thing is Dred Scott was told that he was not a citizen. That's why, as Crowder said, the 14th Amendment was largely created to fix this and other similar decisions. Yeah, and one of the important things about the decision that Tawny handed down is is not only was Dred Scott, who was, you know, enslaved, uh, unable to have citizenship rights, he actually made the claim that no black men in the country, free or not, uh, had the right of citizenship. And so that was a really big deal. And one of the things that the Congress very quickly tried to fix uh, following the end of the Civil War was to guarantee that citizenship, not just in law, but in amendments, something that would be permanent, something that would be lasting and really hard to repeal. Moving on, there is a small section here. It's called the Privileges and Immunities Clause. How about you take that, Hertzler? 
Yeah, the privileges and immunity clauses are important, especially considering in the aspect of Dred Scott, is as long as you are a United States citizen, all privileges and immunities are granted to you under the Bill of Rights and any any kind of law that applies to American citizens. Um, one great example of privileges and immunities is, you know, each state has their own state laws that, that follow along, you know, federal law. So you have the same abilities or you have the same privileges and immunities in those states that people who live in those states do just when you go there. It kind of just encompasses everything and and everybody has the same same rights um, as long as you're a citizen of the U.S. under the 14th Amendment. Due process is kind of difficult to define, and I think it's difficult to define on purpose. Due process basically means there are steps the government has to go through before it can take away any rights that you claim or privileges that you claim or provide you uh, any immunities. So, for instance, the idea is the government can search you, but only after certain steps. The government can convict you, but only after certain steps. So these are things like a search warrant, a, a, a court trial, right? The government can take your property even. It's called eminent domain but only after certain steps. In fact, the government can even kill you, but only after certain steps. So the idea is you can lose certain rights. You can lose certain privileges, but because of the 14th Amendment and the 5th Amendment, there are things the government has to do first. They can't just do it on a whim. They can't do it without a plan. They can't do it without trials. Yeah, and the due process clause is echoing uh, the very same due process clause that we find as part of the Fifth Amendment. And Roseman did a really good job of kind of explaining that the government cannot overstep its bounds in terms of taking your rights away without a deliberate process in place. The reason it's so significant for the 14th Amendment is because this reverberation of the due process clause includes the idea of states. And again, it says nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. We're now specifically saying that due process is one of what would become many Bill of Rights amendments that apply to states and not just the federal government. And again, we have to remember at this point in time that we are still a very divided nation. Many states would still prefer, perhaps, in the 1860s to return to a state of slavery. And so not only did we want to guarantee rights, but we also wanted to guarantee that states would not be able to take rights away from certain individuals, such as the newly freed people. So this gets into the idea of how we used to see the Bill of Rights. And there's a case of, it's called Barron versus Baltimore, and it's from the 1830s. And long story short, we don't have to have a, a broad knowledge of it. But the big idea of that case is that the Supreme Court ruled that the Bill of Rights only applies to actions of the federal government. And in terms of the states, states may or may not have protections that are similar to the federal constitution in their constitutions. But if they don't, then Oh, well, you know, we're going to look at a couple of cases where this comes into play. But again, how we used to understand the Bill of Rights is that it only did apply to the federal level. And Hertzler, that changes. Why is that? Uh, yeah, that's going to change uh, with the 14th Amendment with an idea known as selective incorporation. And as Crowder mentioned, um, many of the states believe that the Bill of Rights only were protections from the federal government, that the states 
didn't have to really worry about the Bill of Rights. It was only the federal government that could violate those freedoms. But through a number of cases that we've already talked about um, on this podcast, you uh, you see that the federal government starts applying the Bill of Rights to the states and that the states must also have those freedoms protected. Uh, we're going to talk about two cases that we've already mentioned the, the subject matter, um, and those are Gideon uh, v. Wainwright and Chicago versus McDonald, and how um, they are going to be included with this idea of selective incorporation. Let's start with Gideon versus Wainwright. Remember, in that case, uh, a man committed a crime. Florida felt like he did not need to have an attorney present, that he could just defend himself in court. But the federal government says you're violating the Sixth Amendment, right? You have to give that man the right to an attorney, whether he can afford it or not. The federal government, you know, enforced that on the state of Florida, even though Florida didn't want to participate, right? Same thing with Chicago v. McDonald. You have an instance where a city was trying to take away firearms from its citizens. They cannot do that because the federal government stepped in and said, hey, you are a part of the United States. The Bill of Rights includes state governments, so you must give these people their, their guns back under the Second Amendment. So it's just a way of the federal government saying, you are also a part of this country. You have to provide these, these freedoms for people. Yeah, and on that very same note, we do want to make sure that we understand that selective incorporation is the concept that over time, through several court cases, dozens of court cases, we've applied the Bill of Rights to the states. It was not all at once. It never was all at once. It's it's selective incorporation is not a sledgehammer. It's more of a chisel. We chip away at, you know, the Bill of Rights uh, applying to states. It's not an all at once type thing. But Gideon, again, great example of just the right to counsel now being incorporated to all states or McDonald versus Chicago now being uh, the Second Amendment incorporated to all states. Um, and the last part of the 14th Amendment is called the Equal Protection Clause. And again, that is, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And so, again, we have to remember in the context this time, especially we're talking about newly freed peoples and states that probably didn't really like that in a lot of ways, the Equal Protection Clause is specifically saying that you have to make laws that apply equally to everyone. You can't have laws that pick and choose essentially who they're going to protect and who they're not going to protect. We're going to come back to the Equal Protection Clause because it plays a big role later on down the line with a couple of court cases we want to look at. Uh, but first, I want to go ahead and finish up our Civil War Amendments. Right. So the final of the Reconstruction Amendments or Civil War Amendments, they're they're both called, I mean, all three of these are called Civil War Amendments and Reconstruction Amendments. They can go hand in hand. So obviously, 13th Amendment ended slavery. 14th Amendment granted citizenship to former enslaved persons. The 15th Amendment granted suffrage, as in the right to vote, to African-American men. That's the trick. It only applied to men. This is where women like Susan B. Anthony have kind of entered the chat. In fact, they get pretty upset because they've been pushing for the right to vote as women, and they were upset oftentimes that African-American men were granted the right to vote before them. Yeah, so right after the Civil War, you have this period known as Reconstruction, where the federal government is making sure that all these new pieces of legislation 
are being enforced mainly in the southern states. Uh, the southern states had to adopt these amendments. It was one of the requirements that they had to do before they could be admitted back into the union. Um, they also had to make sure that society was being integrated fairly and that um, these new ideals were being enforced. The problem is re Reconstruction is going to end on kind of a sour note. Um, and it, it, it led to a time period known as the Jim Crow era. So when Reconstruction ends, the South kind of goes back to the way it was um, pre-Civil War without the idea of slavery, but they, but they create new pieces of legislation themselves to take away some of the rights that were guaranteed in these amendments back from the, the African-Americans in society. So the first thing that happened, you have these new Jim Crow laws that are going to be created uh, to take away rights like voting. Um, there are going to be three ways that they do that. They, they take away African-American males' right to vote. Uh, the first is they're going to issue a poll tax, which basically um, harkens back to this idea that the, the newly freed uh, slaves are very poor. Um, they can't afford to pay for much. So you're going to have to pay a tax to vote. If you can't pay it, you're not allowed to vote. The second is a literacy test. This plays on the idea that, that the freed slaves are, are not very educated that they need to have some sense of education to be able to make decisions. So if they're not, that they can't pass this test, again, they're not able to vote. Yeah, and on this point, the literacy test, I, I do want to make sure we emphasize that it's not so much like, do I know my alphabet? You know, can I read very basic sentences? It's a civics test in a lot of ways. And oftentimes it's a civics test. I would argue that most people in our country uh, today would not do very well with very obscure questions like who are your state Supreme Court justices, you know, things that probably most people, even relatively educated people would have a hard time with. Yeah, and it's also important to know that the people administering these tests as well would turn a blind eye to certain individuals who could not pass the test um, because there were some groups in the South or you know, illiterate um, white individuals who also couldn't pass these barriers that they were just kind of, yeah, you're fine. You, you get a pass. You can vote in this election. Um, and then the last one probably is, is the most devious one of all. It's the one that, that I find um, more shocking. It's the, the idea it's called the grandfather clause. And it basically says that if your grandfather was unable to vote, in, in in previous elections, then you are also not allowed to vote in elections. So it was kind of like a genealogical test of, you know, you know, your grandfather was a slave, so he can't vote. So you'll never also be able to vote. Right. And that's just one of many things that very, very, very quickly go into place. Uh, you know, the black codes, the Jim Crow laws, uh, all these laws to disenfranchise voters and also make black citizens throughout the country really second-class citizens at, at best. And that's where we fast forward just a couple of decades to the 1890s. We come to a man named Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy grew up during the time of Reconstruction in the South. He did get to experience for a brief time what a let's say somewhat more equal society was like. 
But very quickly, he saw in the 1870s, once Reconstruction ended, how very quickly uh, many southern states especially rolled back a lot of the privileges and rights that black people had been given under, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And he becomes somewhat of an activist. And in 1890, Homer Plessy decides to take on these segregation laws. Now, we have to understand a little bit of context about Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy is one-eighth African-American. So he is mixed race, but pretty much passes for white uh, on, on just a quick visual, right? But there's a law in Louisiana, as there is in many southern states during this time, that's called the one-drop rule, that effectively if you have any African-American blood slash heritage, you are considered to be black. And so Homer Plessy, who visually could pass as white, buys a whites-only train car ticket. He boards the train, and upon getting onto the train, he tells the ticket taker that he indeed is black. He's arrested right afterwards, and he is taking it to court. And the Plessy versus Ferguson case makes its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And Plessy, again, is arguing this idea of the equal protection under the law should make segregation illegal. But when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court justices in place actually rule in quite a different way. They rule that segregation can be legal in the United States so long as the facilities for black and white Americans are equal. This is a famous doctrine known as the separate but equal doctrine, and it effectively offers a legalization of segregation throughout all of the United States, but especially in the South and Southeast, from 1896, when the Plessy versus Ferguson decision comes out, all the way into the 1950s and, and, and beyond, honestly. And Hertzer, what happens then? Yeah, the 1950s starts a pushback at a lot of these doctrines early on, especially with the most important court case of the era, the Brown versus Board of Education. The reason why this case is important is this is the first strike back legally um, to end segregation in America. Uh, the NAACP were looking for a start and a pushback in the courts, and it came at this, this case, uh, Brown versus Board. Linda Brown was a, a student of um, an all-black school. Uh, she could have went to a school a lot closer to her home, but she had to travel uh, a good ways away to, to attend an all-African-American all school. So the question they're trying to answer in Brown versus Board of Education is, is the idea of separate schools inherently bad for society? They, they come to an understanding that in Brown's case, the schools are very equal in opportunity in, in the, the, the school building itself, the level of teaching that's going on in these schools. But they look at it at a society point of view, like how does having separate segregated schools affect the society around them? And specifically, and, if I might add, what does it do to the psyche of these children going through this? So by being forced to go to a different school because of the color of your skin, that inherently teaches you that you are unequal. And and if I can just throw one more thing in, and then I promise I'll get back to you because you're rocking it. Just to you, show Tony. how <laughs> just to show how recent this case is, Linda Brown died in 2018. 
That is about five years ago. This is very, very recent past, or just kind of like the way I like to think about it. Um, Linda Brown is about the same age as my mom, and this course was decided the year that my dad was born. Um, so this is very recent history, and one of the ways they showed to kind of go back, I'm going back and forth a little bit here, but one of the ways they showed that this hurt the psyche of these children was they brought in a famous psychologist named Kenneth Clark. And Kenneth Clark had devised a doll test where he showed children, African-American children, two equal dolls, one with white skin, one with black skin. Other than that, the dolls looked identical. And he would ask them questions like, show me the white doll, show me the black doll, show me the one that has a good color, show me the one that's ugly. And every single time that those children were asked to identify anything negative, ugly, bad, whatever, every single time they chose the black doll. And through this experiment, they were able to show that having separate schools was having a deleterious effect on the psyche of these children and making them think they were less than, even if technically the schools were considered separate, but quote, equal. Earl Warren, we've, we talk about Earl Warren quite a bit. This is going to be his first case as a Supreme Court Chief Justice. And he finds it important that this is a unanimous decision. He said the only way that this is going to be a lasting impact on society is if he can get the Supreme Court all to agree that separate but equal and segregation in public education is unconstitutional. And it's also important to point out that the court is, Crowder, I think, mentioned it, that the court is still kind of split on this issue. It was still 5-4, but the, the split was the reasoning behind it. Um, a lot of the, the five believed that it was the federal government's duty to desegregate schools, but the four dissenters believed that it was up to the states to desegregate schools. That that separate but equal is inherently wrong, but it's not the federal government's issue to do so because it's in public education. Earl Warren had to keep writing his decision over and over again to find a decision that the the other four dissenting uh, Supreme Court justices would agree with to pass. And the decision he come up with is that inherently segregation of public education is wrong. And it does have that that social impact that Dan was alluding to with the doll test. But the problem that that happened with this ruling is about how it was going to be carried out. Um, and a very important line that was written in the the case. And what was that line? The Brown versus Board decision actually has two parts to it. The first part does rule that, yes, segregated schools are inherently unequal. The differences in psyche, the differences in feeling of inferiority, right? That's all there. But one of the things that I, probably Earl Warren has to compromise on a lot in his decisions is the timeline and their decision leaving up to states. Uh, and so the second part of the Brown v. Board decision is... What is the deadline for integration? Instead of saying, you know, like I like to kind of say this like a light switch, you know, the Brown v. Board decision doesn't just turn segregation off, right? They say with, quote, all deliberate speed, states should take time to get rid of these inherently unequal schools. And so what does that mean, all deliberate speed? Well, ultimately, it's hard to say. Some states are going to integrate schools right away. Some are actually 
pretty integrated already by this point. But other states are really going to drag their feet about it. And there's a really good allegory I like to tell my kids is the Brown versus Board decision comes out in 1954. A movie that most people have probably seen or know about is Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans is a fantastic movie, a high school football movie. It takes place in Virginia about the first team to come to a brand new high school, which integrates two segregated high schools. And that movie takes place in 1971, right? That is 17 years later. Uh, And it shows that just the amount of time it took for states to actually integrate from the Brown v. Board decision is something that we have to keep in mind. It was not instantaneous. It did not change overnight. Uh, Many states, because the Supreme Court deliberately put it this way, but also we have to remember the Supreme Court doesn't have enforcement power. Some, Some states really drug their feet when it came to integrating schools, some as many as almost two decades from the Brown versus Board decision. If I might also add to kind of just piggyback on that. So I mentioned just a minute ago, the Brown v. Board decision was issued in 1954, which is the year that my dad was born. Well, one of the cases that really followed up with this and said to North Carolina, no, really, you have to integrate was Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools versus Swan, which was issued in 1971, same years like you were mentioning, which was the summer before my dad started 12th grade, right? So imagine a Supreme Court case is issued the summer you're born, and then the summer before 12th grade, the Supreme Court says, no, really, we need you to do this, just to kind of give you an idea of how much this is stretched out. So in in CMS, uh, school districts, you still saw segregated schools, but it wasn't because really they weren't putting kids in in schools. It was because, you know, you have a district, um, you know, when you live in an area, you go to a community school, Charlotte has communities that are all African-American. They might be an all white community in the South and the schools were still very much segregated. What Swan versus uh, CMS did was give them a tool to be able to desegregate the schools in that area. And it allowed for this idea known as busing to desegregate schools. And that's where kids would be taken out of their district or their home school, sent to a different school in the area to help even out the numbers of of white and and African-American students. Some people thought busing was unconstitutional, but the CMS uh, versus Swan case basically says no busing. Busing is allowed. Um, as long as it is helping desegregate schools um, in this district. It's also crazy to think one of the arguments was, you know, my kid's not going to ride a bus for 45 minutes to go to a school out of district. Remember, Linda Brown was riding a bus 30, 40 minutes out of her way to go to a school that was was all African-American. So it kind of defeats it kind of defeats the purpose of, you know, you can de- you can segregate schools, but you can't use it to desegregate schools. The 14th Amendment, we talked about the big idea, giving citizenship, but there are four quick sections that hit on other parts. So, first of all, Section 2 defines apportionment in the House. That repeals the three-fifths compromise that we're not even going to hit on right now. Section 3 bars public officials from um, the Civil War or any insurrection from public office. That's specifically um, people from the Confederate states who were officials in the Civil War. Uh, for the Confederacy. Section four said no additional debts can be paid 
to the Confederate States of America or former slave owners. Why? Because the Confederate States no longer existed. And Section 5 gave Congress rights to enforce the 14th Amendment. Yeah, and even though you typically think of the executive branch as the power to enforce things, uh, we, we do have to understand that a lot of amendments, especially later amendments, give Congress certain authorities to create laws to basically bulk up uh, the amendments and make sure they're better understood in the context of the time. Uh, and, and so this is how it works is we have an application of the 14th Amendment all the way in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act for a long time. The federal government pretty much stayed out of Southern issues. This was one of the agreed upon things that ended Reconstruction, and there was a big compromise in 1876. It was highly controversial. Rutherford B. Hayes got to be president in exchange for the promise that he would essentially leave the South alone. And the South was largely left alone from that point on all the way into the 1950s and 60s. But during that time, again, this is a federalism issue, the Supreme Court and the federal government, the executive branch under Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson, they're looking at the racial issues that are going on in the South. They realize that the federal government just can't sit by any longer. And so there were several civil rights acts that were passed in 1957 is one example, which uh, barred people from interfering with voting. Uh, but the really big one is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did, it, it was meant to counteract a lot of the previous Jim Crow laws, black codes that were put in place that effectively made black Americans second-class citizens. Uh, and the Civil Rights Act is, is a direct application of the 14th Amendment in you know legal code at this point in time. Uh, and so the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is going to massive things to improve the rights of African-Americans uh, all throughout the country. Uh, you know, legally, if we're talking about issues related to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a really famous case is the Heart of Atlanta Motel. And in the Heart of Atlanta Motel, uh, there is a hotel in Atlanta, this should not be mind-blowing so far, trying to keep Black patrons from, from staying there. And Congress and the federal government really tried to go after them. And there is a whole lawsuit that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And using both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Interstate Commerce Clause, here we are again, uh, the Supreme Court rules that segregation in public spaces, specifically hotels, is no longer going to be legal. So at this point in time, public accommodations, hotels, uh, with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, buses, train cars, all these entities, which for a long period of time had been segregated, have to switch things around and allow for both black and white Americans to use those spaces. Similarly to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you're also going to see the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed. And what this did was help Congress um, basically enforce the 15th Amendment. Uh, remember, we talked about during the Jim Crow era, in the southern states mostly, you see ways of this the, these groups uh, to take away the voting rights granted to African Americans in the 15th Amendment. Well, the Voting Rights Act helps Congress enforce that those barriers would be taken away. The two barriers that the Voting Rights Act focus on is the literacy tests and the grandfather clause. This act bans both of those um, in the country, that you cannot... Um, 
make people take a test to be able to vote, and you cannot take a look at a, take a look at a person's lineage and uh, bar them from voting that way. There's one other one that we talked about, and that was you know poll taxes. The 24th Amendment is going to be passed, and that is going to eliminate that step. Uh, th these all come out right at the same time in 1965. Um, but but again, this is just another step of where Congress is stepping in and saying, hey, look, you can't deny these people the right to vote. It's their right under the 15th Amendment. We're just stepping in, creating more legislation to help us enforce that. And of course, over time, the 14th Amendment has been applied in more and more circumstances. So selective incorporation via the due process clause has slowly applied most of the Bill of Rights to states over time. The Equal Protection Clause is now applied to all groups in the USA, not just African Americans. So the 14th Amendment is now used for many, many, many Supreme Court cases um, that go well beyond the initial cause of uh, citizenship for formerly enslaved persons. One of the most easily described examples of just something that's very, very different is Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the 2015 Supreme Court case that grants gay marriage as a right in all 50 U.S. states. And they cited the 14th Amendment. And as you can imagine, um, giving citizenship to former slaves and then um, granting uh, gay marriage to all states in the 50, all 50 states, it's a pretty different application, but it's another example of how it's used very broadly in many, many different cases. Yeah, and civil rights has expanded greatly since the 1860s as well. Women gained the right to vote in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. Hertzer mentioned the 24th Amendment in 1964, which banned the poll tax. And the 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to age 18. This was coming largely from the Vietnam War. And so, long story short, the 14th Amendment, as Roseman pointed out very well, has been applied in a whole lot of ways over time. It applies to all citizens in the United States at this point in time. It's been one of the big amendments that's played a role in a bunch of different court cases with different applications. So the 14th Amendment, again, really important to know. We hope you enjoyed another episode of GovGuys. Uh, I hope Dan enjoyed his time here as well. He's our, our second uh, guest, but the first guest as well. So hey, I love being here with you guys. Just remember, if you want to listen, we are on a lot of the major podcast uh, sites. So Apple Podcasts, uh, we're on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify. That's the big one that I was thinking of. Uh, remember, if you want uh, something to laugh at, we also have a TikTok page where we post funny videos that are educational, but also um, entertaining. And uh, good luck on your test next week. All right, guys. See ya.